0: Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash
1: bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Something's gone a bit funny in developed economies recently. Interest rates just keep slipping, even going negative. Investors are paying banks to keep their money. New research suggests that that slide isn't new. It's been going on for centuries. And we take a look at some revealing insights on scientific papers by female authors, who often have a harder time with reviewers, and whose research is cited less than that of their male counterparts it seems that men are simply puffing up their results more. But first... Taiwan has re-elected its incumbent president, Tsai Ing-wen, by a landslide. Saturday's vote pitted Ms. Tsai of the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, against Hong Kuo-Yu of the Kuomintang, a party that is markedly more cozy with the government of mainland China. The island is of enormous strategic importance. Its location, economy, and security are all essential to American interests. But China claims Taiwan as its own territory, a claim it's been asserting more and more aggressively. Fuller dominion over it would make China a far greater power in the Pacific, able to choke off oil bound for Japan or South Korea. In her victory speech, President Tsai said, when our sovereignty and democracy are threatened, the Taiwanese people will shout our determination even more loudly back. There are implications not just for the Taiwan Strait and for an island brimming with fans of democracy. Demonstrators in Hong Kong will be looking on too.
2: This election was a rejection of Chinese authoritarianism and it was also a rejection of China's claims to Taiwan, which it's claimed as its own since 1949.
1: Jane Rickards writes about Taiwan for The Economist and is based in Taipei.
2: The election saw independence-minded President Tsai Ing-wen run against a more pro-China candidate, Han Guo Yu of the Kuomintang. And Tsai won the election with a record number of votes, the highest number of votes since presidential elections started. So this shows that Chinese attempts to win Taiwan over are not working. Also, just last year, President Tsai's political future appeared to be in ruins. She had to step down as DPP chairman after the party got thrashed in municipal elections in November 2018. So what changed? What changed was the Hong Kong protests. Earlier in the year, Xi Jinping had offered Taiwan a version of One Country, Two Systems, the formula which China uses to rule Hong Kong. And pro-democracy protests and all the political unrest gave Miss Tsai a big boost in popularity. The DPP was successfully able to point out that this is what would happen if Taiwan ever accepted Mr Xi's offer, the one country, two systems model. So the unrest in Hong Kong gave a renewed vigor to Miss Tsai's campaign and caused her popularity to soar.
1: And so, in a sense, Miss Tsai's victory looks like a repudiation of what it is that China wants to do. I mean, do you think this is a sign that the Taiwanese people want closer ties with America than with China?
2: Yes, President Tsai received a big boost in popularity at home last year when the US sold Taiwan two major arm packages, including over 16 jets. However, it should be noted that Taiwanese people's wish for closer ties with the US is also really a result of their widespread revulsion towards Chinese authoritarianism and their need for a superpower to protect their 24 million strong island.
1: And so that is to say you think that ties with America will now deepen? That appears to be what the people want?
2: Yes, they will definitely deepen and that's what the people want. Having said that, the opposition, Guomindang, also sought deeper ties with America. So it's not as if American ties would have changed drastically if the Guomindang had won.
1: So it sounds as if the incumbent administration and the more pro-China candidate and party are seeking closer ties with America. That seems somewhat at odds.
2: Not really, because um, the opposition, Guomindang, supports the idea that Taiwan is a sovereign country in the form of Republic of China. Um, It loosely accepts the idea that Taiwan's part of China and as such wants closer dialogue with China and wants to step up business ties. But It wants to negotiate from a position of strength, so it would give equal support, for example, to American arms deals that the Tsai administration would. Having said that, President Tsai Ing-wen is highly trusted in Washington. She's got very good diplomatic abilities and she knows how to use them.
1: And so in what regard then did China try to influence this election, do you think?
2: Ever since President Tsai took office in 2016, China stepped up military exercises and the aim was to intimidate the voters who had elected her. For example, there were regular flybys from PLA bomber jets, but China knows from experience that these kinds of actions actually influence voters to support the DPP. So it actually stopped the jet patrols in the middle of this year, and there haven't been any recently at all. Having said that, the DPP also said that China had waged a Russian-style influence and misinformation campaign. However, many foreign observers said they were impressed with how well the Taiwan government and organisations it was working with responded to false reports, and this could often be within an hour.
1: So in the bigger picture, how do you think China is going to deal with this national mood that wants closer ties with another superpower and with two parties that are courting outside powers and so on?
2: I don't think China's stance towards Taiwan will change, at least in the short term. So we'll probably see a continuation of regional military exercises. I'll probably continue with the economic incentives to lure Taiwanese professionals to work in China with salaries that are much higher than what they could earn in Taiwan. And we'll continue to isolate Taiwan internationally. We'll probably try and steal or successfully still one of Taiwan's 17 remaining diplomatic allies. I don't think China has much of a choice. If it accepts President Tsai's line that Taiwan is not part of China, that means that Taiwan will drift further away. Beijing will have effectively given the DPP government permission to not label Taiwan as part of China and it doesn't want to do that. On the other hand, taking more drastic military action against Taiwan, even limited military action, for example, seizing one of the outlying islands, is probably not an option for China, although I'd stress we still don't know. An analyst I spoke to said that if China did this, it would be an indication that its Taiwan policy isn't working. And President Xi Jinping is facing a very critical year in 2022. He's going to decide whether he wants to stay on or appoint a successor. And he doesn't want major mishaps with Taiwan or its Taiwan policies in the two years before that, because we'll give Chinese hawks reason to argue that his policy towards Taiwan isn't working.
1: Well, I mean, that's certainly what it looks like, that the the policy isn't working. The people are expressing their will, they're they're gaining more independence, they've got the support of the international community, and and China has its hands tied in terms of of actually responding to that.
2: Yes, look, it does appear that China has its hands tied. I think it's important to mention that many manoeuvres from China to isolate Taiwan, for example, putting pressure on multinational companies not to call Taiwan a country, are aimed at a domestic audience in China as much as Taiwan and the rest of the world. So it's not so much whether the global community decides to call Beijing's Taiwan policies a failure. What we think doesn't really matter to the Chinese leadership. It's more whether hawks in China see these policies as a failure and decide that policies of peaceful unification are not working. And then they put enough pressure on Xi Jinping's leadership to make him make a change in Taiwan policy. Also, even though China blusters a lot about Taiwan, many analysts in Taiwan say that Taiwan's actually not one of China's top foreign policy priorities. It's far more concerned with places like Hong Kong, for example.
1: What about in the the other direction, though? What do you think the sort of slow successes in Taiwan in terms of independence mean for territories like Hong Kong, where, where things are much more fraught?
2: The election victory for the DPP should give hope to democracy activists in Hong Kong and China everywhere. After all, this is evidence that a Chinese-speaking community can create a democratic government and can change leadership peacefully and so on. However, I would stress that Hong Kong and China are entirely different places from Taiwan, in particular Hong Kong's diplomatic environment and where it's actually constitutionally part of China and its history are entirely different from Taiwan's. And also there's no proof that Chinese people actually want democracy. So I think Hong Kong and China will take the paths they want to take, or they're forced to take. So I think this is kind of a beacon for democracy activists. But I don't think Taiwan's democratic experience can be 100% reduplicated in those places.
1: Jane, thank you very much for your time.
2: Thank you, Jason.
1: How low can interest rates go? New research suggests even further. Since the financial crisis of 2008, central banks' rates have been pushed down to unprecedented levels. Across much of the developed world, they're near or even below zero, and that's a big problem for combating future recessions.
4: Before recessions, in order to try to head off the downturn and encourage people to spend and invest more during periods of economic difficulty, the main policy tool used by central banks is to cut their headline interest rate.
1: Charles Reed writes about finance and economics for The
4: Economist. Now, this is all very well if you're cutting it from 4 or 5 percent to 2 or 3 percent. However, if your interest rate, even before you get to the recession, is 0.75%, you haven't got much room before you hit zero. And the point is that this policy tool doesn't work as well once you start cutting interest rates below zero. If the bank charges you to store money at the bank, why put your money in the bank? Just stuff it under your bed. And so therefore, falling interest rates, but more importantly, hitting zero, is a big economic problem and a big, big issue for central bankers.
1: And central bankers might be in for more bad news. There are some troubling implications in a new working paper published by the Bank of England based on data stretching back centuries.
4: Most research on long-term interest rates just looks at data from the past few decades or the past century. In contrast, this new working paper by Paul Schmelzing of the Yale School of Management looks at real interest rates going back to the early 14th century, the period when capitalism and free markets began to emerge from feudalism in Europe. And so
1: what shows up in the data if you look as far back as the 14th century?
4: Real interest rates have been falling since that period. Of course, you get years where it goes up and goes down. But the long-term trend is consistently going down and down. So the real rate of return from lending assets to a relatively safe institution such as a government has fallen from around 10% in the 15th century to just 0.4% last year.
1: So if this is a trend that goes back literally seven centuries, what does that tell you about rates today?
4: Very low interest rates, almost either at or very near zero, is not a short-term acute problem. It suggests that interest rates will continue to fall. And that has raised worries that the world economy and the US economy in particular has fallen into what some economists have called secular stagnation.
1: And what precisely does that mean?
4: Well, secular stagnation is the idea that the rate of return on investment and The levels of economic growth more generally have been falling and the economy, global economy, is becoming ever more sluggish. It was popularised by Larry Summers in a speech at the International Monetary Fund in 2013. Now, this idea is often talked about simply in the period since the 1970s and early 80s, when real and nominal interest rates were very high. Larry Summers suggested that this is due to factors such as an ageing population. Older people tend to do a lot of saving for their pensions and tend to spend less. This means that there's excessive saving and not enough investment in the economy, which results in lower economic growth.
1: So Mr. Schmelzing's working paper suggests that secular stagnation is not a phenomenon then from the 70s, but has been going on constantly since, well, for as long as interest rates have been around.
4: Yes, indeed, since the birth of capitalism in the 14th century. Mr. Schmelzing's work suggests that this trend applies both in periods when the population has been aging, as well as in periods where the population has been getting younger. And indeed, it's also applied in periods equally as much where there is strong levels of economic growth, as well as weak periods of growth, and in periods where there are strong levels of population growth, as well as periods when the population was falling. In short, it suggests that this is an underlying feature of capitalism. It's not due to acute problems such as an ageing population. A better way to think about this is using a concept economists call the diminishing rate of return. Each additional unit of something you invest or consume gives less welfare gains or happiness or enjoyment than the first unit. For example, once you bought your 31st Ferrari, you're not going to gain as much marginal joy from the existing 30 you have than if you go from not owning a car to buying one Ferrari. And that's exactly the same as what's going on in the global economy. Since the 14th century, the world and humanity has been creating more wealth and storing more wealth, creating more capital and storing more capital. And that means that as we invest extra units of capital now... That gains less in returns than back in the 15th century when the world was very poor. There wasn't that much capital. There wasn't that much in terms of savings. And therefore, investing in those days produced much greater returns than it does today.
1: And so thinking about it this way must upend some recent thinking that's been developed on the idea that this is a recent phenomenon.
4: Exactly. So instead of thinking that interest rates will rise again, we'll go back to the world before the financial crisis of interest rates of 4, 5, 6% or more, instead it suggests that we'll get into a world of permanently negative interest rates. So Mr. Smelzing suggests that by the late 2020s, short term rates will be permanently negative. And he suggests that by the late 21st century, long-term rates will also be stuck in permanently negative territory. This means that central banks will have to get used to their policy rates being around zero or below zero. In short, they're not going to have that much firepower through conventional means to prevent recessions in the future. And there's going to be a lot of money stored under mattresses. Exactly. And worse still, it means that you'll have to save for your pension for a much longer period of time, because with interest rates and rates of return on capital much lower, it'll take you far more time to accrue the amount of money you need for your retirement.
1: Charles, thank you very much for joining
4: us. Thank you very much.
1: Women make up about 40% of the authors of scientific studies but their work is often reviewed less favorably and cited by other scientists less often than that of their male colleagues. It turns out that some of that discrepancy might simply be down to subtleties of language in the paper's technical summaries, or abstracts.
0: A new study by Mark Lerchenmuller and Olaf Sorensen of Yale and Anupam Jaina of Harvard Medical School looked at scientific abstracts, basically clinical research journal articles Lane Green writes Johnson, our column on language. And they put them in two different bins. If both the first and last authors were women, then these were coded as sort of women's articles. And the other ones, either the first or last or both first and last authors were men. The reason they chose first and last authors is that the first author on these papers is typically the main researcher. And the last author is often a senior researcher who is sort of guiding the work. And they looked at the language in these titles and abstracts and found that the articles with a male 1st or last author used a lot more self-praising language. So so what kind of language are we talking about? So the articles with a male 1st or last author tended to use a lot more self-praising terms along the lines of novel, favorable, unique, promising. These are words in which the researchers describe their own findings. So this is essentially a kind of
1: self-puffery, and it turns out that men do it significantly more. Than women do. I mean, we kind of already knew this about men and male authors. Is this all male ego or are there institutional reasons that you think this is happening?
0: Well, there's another interesting study in, in an economics journal where it turned out that women's submissions, despite being good quality, were being reviewed a longer time. Reviewers, peer reviewers were asking more questions and making women do more and more resubmission of the work. And interestingly, they found that the so-called readability score of abstracts improved with women. And readability score is kind of a misnomer. It really just says, are you using short sentences and short words? Women's abstracts got more readable over the course of this review process. So they're making shorter sentences and using simpler words. And so as just a hypothesis here, I hypothesized that maybe in this process, A, it's demoralizing and B, you're taking out words to make things simpler. And maybe that's making women cut words like promising and novel when they're describing their
1: own work. Unless there happens to be a confounding factor in that the research was, in fact, more novel or more promising.
0: Right. So I put that to the authors and they said, look, we can't because they looked at over 100,000 papers. So they couldn't assess the quality of all 100,000 papers. Obviously, what they did do is control for submissions to the same journal, submissions to the journals and ranks of the same prestige. So they could compare them apples to apples. Everything that was accepted by this prestigious journal should basically probably be comparable. It's not impossible that the men did more novel and and, and promising research,
1: but all of these controls make that possibility a lot less likely. Is that to say that female scientists, if they want their work to be viewed as novel and promising, should say so more loudly? Well, the
0: authors themselves don't say that explicitly. You, You could turn the prescription around and say, men, stop blowing your own horns. So incessantly, if your work is promising and interesting, it should stand on its own without your having to tell people so, but you could take the prescription either way. But it appears that this difference in self-promotion does exist. And more importantly, it has a real-world effect, which is to say that the articles that are described in these promising turns in turn, get cited more often in subsequent journal articles. And that effect is even bigger in prestigious journals. So if you puff your own article in a well-known journal with a high so-called impact factor, then that puffery helps the subsequent citation
1: even more. I mean, in in an increasingly distant past, I used to be a, a research scientist, and this is what you do: you you find the the most exciting sounding words, you make the the research sound as interesting and impactful as you possibly can to to sell it to the journal editors, to to, to sell it to the readers. In fact, I mean, this seems like standard industry practice to me, but and again, I'm a guy.
0: Well, it has become even more standard industry practice. So the authors, just as a side note, looked at the prevalence of these words over the last sort of fifteen years or so, from about. 2002 to 2017. So all these words are on the increase so everybody's in an arms race and if you've only got 150 words in your abstract and every single one of them is sort of promising and unique and novel then you're going to run out of actual content words to describe what you did. It's so no longer novel. There is an arms race involved but it's one with a, with a natural ceiling and how many of these self-puffing adjectives you can fit into the space. Lane, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you.